Welcome to another episode of Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. I'm Jenny Lindblad. Writing is a central activity in anthropology. Anthropologists write field notes, academic articles, books, research proposals, administrative texts, among other things. And some are taking interest in writing journalism and fiction. The very writing is something we mostly do by ourselves, before inviting colleagues to comment on our work in progress and eventually share it with a broader audience. Meanwhile, co-writing is becoming all the more common. In this episode, we talk to Helena Wolf, who is Professor of Social Anthropology at the Department of Social Anthropology in Stockholm University. She has published extensively and is currently doing research on literary arts among contemporary Irish writers. Professor Helena Wolf is the editor of the volume The Anthropologist as Writer, Genres and Contexts in the 21st Century. This volume includes 16 contributions that discuss different genres that anthropologists are expected to master today. In our conversation that was recorded in Helena's office, she shares her personal relation to writing and encourages anthropologists to explore various genres of writing. Enjoy! It is great to have you here, Helena. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. It would be interesting, since you are involved with writing in various ways, in your research and as an anthropologist, to learn more about how this interest came about. Where did your own writing story begin? Yes, indeed. If we go back to the beginning, um, I, I remember as a child, as a young child, that I used to tell stories to my younger friends up to the point that I, I remember that my parents took me to task for telling frightening stories to younger friends. So that was I think that was the beginning storytelling before I started writing. And then of course I did learn to read before school. I learned to read by myself. And I also think what mattered in all this was also that our parents read fairy tales for me and my brother very, very much. Our mother, who was a housewife, this was in the 1950s, famously used to take out the vacuum cleaner in order to clean the house. But just, you know, she took it out and then she said, oh, no, let's read stories instead. <laughs> so we we were reading stories all day. And I think later on I realized how much this meant to me for my intellectual development. And of course, as me and my brother became older, we also spent so many dinners talking about literature and theater and movies and we were taken to the opera and to the ballet and of course i realized as an anthropologist many years later that we were certainly steeped in cultural capital well the very first story i remember writing was about two boys on a school holiday and I must have been about eight or something like that. And it was a school essay I did. What I did also for me, you know, learning to write, we, we were first taught to write with a pencil. And then when we knew a bit of how to write and we were, when we were going to write longhand, then we were all able to buy, incidentally, we had to buy them fountain pens with our names written on them. And I still have this mm. fountain pen 
I've kept it because it was so momentous for me to be able to have this tool that I started writing longhand with. So that was important for me. And of course I loved to write and to read. I read ferociously all the time, very much. And I read books that I know my contemporaries hadn't started to read. And I even read books that my parents said, you shouldn't read them yet, you should wait. But of course I read them in secret. <laughs> Do you have some of those books which you remember more than the others, which has been more important for your continuous writing? I think I read, I read uh, War and Peace early and I saw the movie. So, you know, those kinds of epic stories. But I read, again, I read everything from cartoons to um, girls' books to um, European classics. And of course, again, because my parents and my grandparents kept talking about the European classics. My grandparents, they did something that I realized isn't that unusual, namely that people reread mm. when they get old books they used to read as when they were young. So some you discover new things when you get older. And how did you get into anthropology? What happened was I have to start then by saying that as a teenager I was dancing classical ballet quite seriously and uh, when I was 17 I was injured which meant I got a backache. I had to stop dancing quite abruptly and this was very traumatic. So it wasn't until then that I'd realized how much dancing was a way for me to express myself. So it was very traumatic. Uh, what happened was that I, I, had, I blocked out dancing. I couldn't bear watching other people dance. So I didn't go to see performances. I finished school and I went to university and uh, I started studying comparative literature. You know, it was certainly something that my mother and my father had done. And, you know, again, it was really such a natural thing for me to do. And I knew already as a young student that I wanted to write and do research. But I couldn't do it in literature since my father had done that. And you have to do something different than your father. But see where I am now, ending up with literature. But <laughs> this was many years ago. You want to be independent when you're young. So I went on to study philosophy and French. And then there was one more subject I needed in order to finish my BA. And then I was looking for a subject that had to, had to do with my two interests, people and social theory. And that was anthropology. So I started with anthropology, thinking I would do anthropology for a year and then decide about my life later on. But after two weeks, I was hooked. So I went up to my teacher and said, so how do I get into the PhD program? <laughs> and he said, why don't you finish this semester first? <laughs> so I did, and I'm still here. <laughs> Great. In your uh, education experience, was there a lot of focus on the craft of writing anthropologically? Not really. I think this has come more recently for us. What happened was that I had uh, a very good supervisor who taught us to take writing seriously. And I think editing can work wonders. You can learn if somebody else, if a good editor edited, edits your text, you learn the craft of writing. But writing has to be taken seriously. You have to have an interest in writing, which not all anthropologists have unfortunately. But to me it's extremely important to write well and to write accessibly and even about difficult and complicated issues because in my view you can explain them in an accessible way. There are great anthropologists such as Frederick Bart and Ulf Hannertz who do this. In my view it's um, 
I know that I have colleagues who, if you know, <laughs> who have they've made a career out of. If I say they've made a career out of being incomprehensible, I'm not fair. But sometimes, you know, I I know I have colleagues who are very difficult to read, and they don't make an effort to to be understood. And I think this is hype because I think academics really should be accessible. And if we stay with the word accessible, which I guess can mean a lot of different things, depending on from which perspective we, we look on it. When, when you are writing, who do you imagine as an audience or do you imagine an audience? And in what ways do you try to, to make it accessible? Yes, I think this is a key question you know, about the mm -hmm. audience. And it also relates to the fact that we now have many different anthropological genres and to my book. The Anthropologist's Writer, where we argue for the for the importance of developing different anthropological genres and for anthropologists to master different genres. As we say in this book, anthropologists nowadays have to learn and master not only academic writing, but also, of course, learn how to write administrative texts, how to write reports, both academic reports, but also reports for development agencies and for ministries and so on and so forth and that's yet another genre and writing research proposals for research grants is also a different genre a special genre which has to be learned and taken seriously as a different genre and then we also should write we say in this book popularly in an accessible way journalistically and in, and in other ways for people who are not anthropologists so what happens there is i think when we write popularly, it's a tale of two translations. Because first we translate, the, in the ordinary way, we translate data from the field we have collected into academic text. That's what we do most of the time. But in this case, we have to do yet another translation, translate the academic findings into a popular version. And those of us who have done that, like I have, occasionally I write articles for Swedish daily, Svenska Dagbladet, Arts and Leisure pages. I also write and have written for European dance magazines, Dance Europe in uh, Britain and Ballet International in Germany, for instance. So I keep working on these texts uh, and I enjoy writing popularly. What happens is when you do this is that you discover things in your data when you popularize that you did not realize, that you didn't see when you only consider them academically. And then you can bring these findings back into the academic work. But um, when it comes to audiences, obviously, when I write uh, academically, I write for colleagues and students in anthropology and the social sciences, and, and to some extent also in the human sciences. I, I've started collabor collaborating with uh, people in literary studies. We're building a program on world literature here at Stockholm University. So uh, sometimes when I, when, I do, when I write things for them, I have to think about how literary people read and not only anthropologists but I think really the big difference here is between writing academically on one hand and then writing popularly on the other and when you write popularly of course I have you know a general reader of a daily newspaper who has an interest in the arts and culture but then if I write about dance and ballet and literature or any of those topics I have to, you know, it's important, and I don't think all of us academics know about this, because many of us think that since I can write academically, I can write popularly, but this is not true. You have to learn a different genre. If you write popularly, you have to start with what's important, 
and you have to start in a catchy way because you, you you have the reader's attention for about 10 or 15 20 seconds then you lose him or her if you don't if you're not interesting so it has to be a bit provocative or stirring things up a bit uh, evoking their curiosity so they continue reading uh, whereas when we do academic texts we can there's a long introduction maybe we start with an ethnographic vignette and then there is a long introduction and we we you know the aim of this is that this and that and here is the theory and here is the ethnography collected this and there there and so on so it's it's totally different i also think that's what's happening nowadays uh, in academia is that we develop all these new genres which has to do with writing short pieces it's becoming quite common to do that in addition to writing long pieces, which I find quite interesting because I think you can, it, it emphasizes different things and you can present them in different forms. So I think that's, it's a good practice. It's interesting to do, but it's also good, I think, intellectually. Well, that's very interesting because you really pin down all these various genres within also perhaps the sort of dichotomy between academic and non-academic writing. And, and it struck me that there's another aspect to accessibility. Uh, you have written a lot about um, dance, literary production, and visual arts. And there is a certain also accessibility to the experiences that your informants have when carrying out these different practices. For example, the book Dancing at the Crossroads and Valley Across Borders. In these books, you really closely write about the pains and the joys and the physical experiences of dancing. So how do you write accessibly? How do you access these kind of uh, experiences and emotions and how do you write this out? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question also. And it, you know, I, it has been very beneficial for me, very useful for me that I used to dance myself. When I set out on my study on ballet as a transnational occupation, I realized it would be useful for me that I used to dance because I I, I remembered there is, we talk about body mem memory I remembered what it feels like to dance even though I couldn't do it the way my informants or interlocutors did it anymore and you know I'm not the only one we're quite a few people who are studying physical activities who are aware that you know it's not a coincidence that most of us have used to do this activity or we learn to do it even if it's like uh, Louis Vacan who studied boxers mm -hmm. Uh, and who learned to box for this, which can't, it can't have been easy, but he did. So, and also for me, you know, studying dancers, dancers see themselves as vulnerable, and I think they are vulnerable and different than other people. And they often feel misrepresented in the media. So having a dancing background, they trusted me because they realized I knew about what it's like to be a dancer. I think that's one important aspect of of uh, of my accessibility to these worlds. But I should say, however, I should add rather that um, I'm not saying that it's impossible to do fieldwork on dance or other physical activities if you haven't done them. I think there are people who are extremely talented as field workers and who could do it or who have experience of some other physical activity. But I know that for me, not least in my ballet study, which, you know, the ballet world is closed and it's different in many ways. I, could, I, I couldn't have done this study if I hadn't a dancing background. And did you get any responses on, from, from your informants of how you write about? Yeah, the... well, you know, what happened was that um, 
which was quite interesting and fits into our discussion here, because after I, I'd spent a year at the Stockholm Opera with the Royal Swedish Ballet, and then I spent three months each with the Royal Ballet in London, with the American Ballet Theatre in New York, and with Ballet Frankfurt in Frankfurt am Main, a contemporary ballet company, uh, and its choreographer William Forsythe. So I was in the field for almost two years for that study. But uh, uh, here in Stockholm, after when the, when the year had almost passed, the dancers started coming up to me and saying, so Helena, you're a writer. Why don't you write about us in the newspaper? And then I felt, you know, a lot of guilt. And I thought, this is my chance to give something back to the people I'm studying. Because I realized that they would probably not read my academic book, but they might read a newspaper article or, or if I write in a dance magazine. So I made the momentous decision to write my first piece for uh, the Swedish uh, daily uh, about this company and about uh, its repertory and about ballet. And when that was published, well, you know, first of all, when you write in a, in a newspaper, everyone has read it. Even though, I mean, they might not have read it, but they've seen it. So I got this sense, you know, that everyone's read it. Wow. Uh, but then, of course, with a newspaper article, they forget it the week after. Mm -hmm. A book takes longer to read, but it stays longer. So that's another difference between these different genres. But uh, having this article then in the, this daily, the very day it was published, I went to the opera for my usual participant observation at rehearsals that day, and I was very worried. I was really wondering, you know, how, how are they going to react? What's going to happen to my fieldwork here? But they loved it. Wow. So I was really pleased. And then I realized that I had been able to verbalize some of their most important concerns, mm -hmm. some of the things that they normally wouldn't really see written about in uh, papers or anywhere else. So I, I was, it became a part of my fieldwork. So that was really great. Then, of course, I've had I've heard from two dancers who have read the book, and I was again extremely happy, overjoyed, in fact, that they both loved it, and they both said, "You got it completely right." <laughs> that really brings importance also to the craft of writing and taking it seriously. Yes, it does. I think the so. The way it can mm -hmm. really bring out things yes. in new ways. Mm -hmm. for the important. And if we go back then to the, the volume that you've been yes. editing, mm -hmm. would you mind sharing a little more maybe what you find important with this volume and what it contributes with, with for the um, discipline of anthropology today? Yes, well, we certainly argue for the importance of writing in different genres and, and also f of finding new genres mm -hmm. for academics and to acknowledge and make use of the fact that quite a few of our colleagues write fiction, write poetry, and um, actually there are anthropologists who write crime novels, which I find interesting. And it turns out that quite a few anthropologists are very engaged readers of crime novels. And I don't think this is a coincidence, you know, because it's, it's a good way to learn how to construct a text, I think, to, to keep the momentum, the suspense and surprise, to learn that from crime novels. One thing that I learned from the theater, if you like, from, from spending a lot of time in the theater with dancers while I was thinking of how to write about them is the importance, just like on stage, the importance when you write of entrance and exit. How do you start a text and how do you end a text? 
And I think, you know, that the ending of a text can some, if it's very well crafted, this is what the reader remembers. Mm -hmm. And this, so it's very important to, to, to craft those carefully. And also, you know, to write with suspense, making suspense and, and surprise to keep the reader's uh, attention. So I think we're doing that. And I have a number of wonderful and fantastic colleagues in this book who are very well qualified and who have written a lot on writing and literature, such as um, Kirin Narayan, who writes about uh, Chekhov as her uh, writing muse, Anton Chekhov. And we have Paul Stoller, who writes about the importance of writing for the future. Dominic Boyer, who writes about um, how we were all trained to teach and do research, but that nowadays publishing, rather than writing, publishing has become maybe the most important part of our job, actually, and of making a career, making a name, not least in these days of ranking and academic audit. Dominic Boyer writes especially about the importance of publishing for when you apply for tenure in the United States. And of course, publishing with prestigious publishers. Nowadays, we're sort of uh, checked all the time for we it's seen too that we write and publish in international peer-reviewed journals. And of course, it it makes our our work more more um, visible, which is fine. But the, these are really to, to write journal articles in these types of journals. That's really what counts the most in these rankings and evaluations. But, you know, academically, and again, if you want to make a name for yourself, if you want to, to, to keep being a part of the academic community and landscape, it's writing books that counts anyway. So, you know, writing a book, a book is still more visible, I think, if it is with a good publisher. Also because they're good at marketing, then uh, I'd say than than uh, most uh, journal articles would be. Academics are, are stubborn. We we you know we do what we want, and many of us want to want to continue to do books, because you can you have more space to develop an argument. How is it to write a book from your experience? <laughs> Actually, what I what I would be curious to hear more about, I suppose, is the idea that writing is to a large extent a lonely task, mm. and at the same time, it is something that is shared with a lot of people, and mm. there's an editing process in it. So, how do you go about, where would you start <laughs> with a blank sheet in front of you <laughs> to write a book? <laughs> and we can go on with questions from there. Well, you know, first of all, I think it's, it's, um, it's interesting how being an anthropologist, being an academic, resembles being a fiction writer in the sense that we have to enjoy spending a lot of time on our own. Mm. At the same time, as we have to enjoy and function be, we have to be media savvy. We have to, you know, we have to be, and we have to, of course, be very social and, and give papers at conferences and, and create networks and build our networks of colleagues and all of that. So that an academic career, just like a writer's, fiction writer's career, has two sides. Mm. The one when you're on your own writing and the one when you're out there being social. I think you wouldn't, I, I don't, I can't remember, if if there is a moment with a blank sheet, I think it starts very early. So, for instance, if I um, if we talk about this book I'm writing now, which is a monograph on uh, 
the social world of Irish contemporary fiction writers and their work. It's about writing as craft and career in Ireland. This builds on uh, a long fieldwork I've been doing on and off in Ireland. I, was, I had funding for three years from the Swedish Research uh, Council. So uh, then I was able to go there more often. But it has certainly been a long-term project. I think the book for me starts when I start conceptualizing, conceiving the, uh, the, the research project before the research, because I like writing books. So that's how I think of, you know, that major research projects that I do, I want them to result in a book. Yeah, it's very much a continuous process, of course, writing. I mean, also field notes. Oh, yeah, the... indeed. You start, in a sense, you start writing your book there, you know, as soon as you... Well, I mean, with the research proposal, certainly, but then field notes would be early. Early sentences and early thoughts, definitely, on, on, on you know, paragraphs on what's going into the book. Do you share with other people along the way your writing? Yes, I do. I do. Um, I have... Well, a, s a small number of close colleagues and friends, two, maybe three sometimes, it varies a bit, whom I would send my text to and they would comment on them. And this is very, very useful to do. I mean, as far as I know, everyone does. No matter how far you've uh, arrived, you reached in your career, how famous you are, how many books you've written, people still do this. Because it's important, you know, four eyes see see more than two, or six eyes see more than two, definitely. So it's still, you know, this this uh, expression, to kill your darlings. It's uh, certainly, you know, I mean, I still have this, you know, that something you, you did in the field that you really, really loved. It was such great fun. But then a colleague can say very politely, hey, that doesn't do anything to the text. Why is it here? You have to take it out. <laughs> that brings us into the struggles of writing. Oh, yeah. It's a wonderful struggle, I think. Yeah. It is a struggle, but I, you know, I, it's my breathing. Mm. I love it. So, um, and I also think it cannot be good if it isn't a struggle. So there is a point, there is always a point, no matter how short or long the text you're writing is going to be. Some, occasionally I've written like, you know, a few lines for the Swedish dance magazine about something. And even that, it has to have a clue. It has to have, you know, some something... A good, good point, a major point. But there is, there is this moment when you despair. You wonder, how's, how's this going to be? I'm stuck. But then my trick is always to continue no matter what. I don't accept writer's block. You know, I asked um, one of the writers um, in my study on Irish contemporary fiction writers, Roddy Doyle, who wrote The Commitments which became a, a film and now is a musical in London's West End. He's written so many books and he's uh, been extremely success successful. He has, like all my the writers I study and like myself, a rigid writing schedule. He gets up and starts writing. Uh, he sends his children to school. He's committed father and, and husband also. He sends his children to school at 8.30 and then he sits down in the attic in his room and writes for two hours. And then he watches BBC's football page, you know, and then he goes on like that. I asked him, do you get writer's block, blocks? And he said, I write through them. Because, you know, they happen, you, there are good days and bad days. 
But the point is, you write even on a bad day. There's always something you can use. You just push through. You have to push. And then at some point, almost without you noticing, you're flying again. So you keep writing. I do. Yeah, I do. That's the trick. I, I, absolutely. You know, there's no way. Occasionally I can, I go for a walk, I go for long, I go for power walks in the morning, which is a good way to think. And also occasionally I go swimming and then in a nearby swimming pool. And then what happens is, you know, if you, okay, you, you, okay, you, yes, you feel stuck sometimes, but in the pool, so many times, or when I walk along the water here in Stockholm, so many times, I found the solution. I found a really good expression. And of course, what happens is that you, you know, there's blood in the brain because you start moving. <laughs> so you relax, and that's why you get going again. So you could say that the writer's block is really a physical. Situation. In a way it is, but I also think, you know, you shouldn't fool yourself and be away too long mm. from the typewriter either. Mm. What I also do, when I have a looming deadline, you know, some deadlines are negotiable in our work, others are not. And, you, you know, good deadlines are very good, they make you finish things. But if there's a deadline, and I, you know, I, I feel stressed and busy, what I do then, I get up in the morning and I start writing directly without checking emails without looking at Facebook. Nothing of that. No internet, just to the text. And then I write for a few hours and then I can take a break. And then of course, you know, when I'm really in a hurry with the text, I don't check emails until the late afternoon. And what happens is, you know, many things sort themselves out before you have time to, to, to go into your email. And then also with the because of the time difference, you know, people I communicate a lot with in Britain, Ireland and the United States. When it comes to Britain and Ireland, we're one hour ahead. So, you know, if, uh, if it's to do with an office or something, I have an, an hour before to, to, my, uh, to work on with them. And then with the United States, they don't wake up until midday for us. So that's really convenient. I can work when they're asleep. That's good. That's really good. In your academic writing, would you say that the ethnographic material or the theoretical uh, framework is driving your writing forward? I think it varies. It, it depends. Of course, there is the point of, of, of having ethnography and theory to me is that there's an interplay they uh, trigger each other and you develop th theory through ethnography but i think you know also you don't always know where you're going to end up you have to start writing writing is a way of thinking so that's why you have to start writing early and write many drafts and realize and know you know that famous prolific writers write many drafts so i, th I think it varies actually of course you can write you can write a purely theoretical text and then of course it's a theory and you can also write a very ethnographic text but you know our ethnographic texts are theory driven they are informed by theoretical questions that we had in our minds when we selected the ethnography there is an irish writer in a book chapter that you have written and this writer says that quote you can be taught what not to do but not what is needed. Dedication, ruthlessness, love of language, inside of tips, you don't really think about." End quote. Yes, that's John Banville. And I think he's absolutely right, you know. I think so. I, I do, you know, I belong to those who believe that some people do have a, a talent for writing. But it always has to be 
developed. It always has to be nourished. And importantly, you know, as scholars and academics, we have to keep developing all the way through our careers. Some of my colleagues get stuck in one style, which is very boring, I think. It's interesting to try to develop the style, our styles and, and to write in different genres because, because it feeds our intellectual issues. So the process of writing is very much also reading. Do you have any particular books or readings that you go back to? Oh yes, I have two favorites that I never leave and that you uh, can never get away from. And first of all, it's um, Victor Turner's From Ritual to Theatre, The Human Seriousness of Play, which was very important for me as a young student and I still have it. It is a beautiful edition. And then the other one is Art Worlds by Howard Becker, the American sociologist. And in this book, he very early introduced the idea that artists are not actually people who work on their own. They uh, collaborate with uh, a lot of other people who help them contribute, make contributions to their artwork. And uh, this I applied when I did my study of dancers. And I'm also using it when I study writers now. And then I'm focusing on at the moment then for how writers have obviously have to work with editors and publishers uh, but also how, how critics can uh, make or break a book mm -hmm. and uh, if not a career at least a book definitely and of course readers are also part of this social world of, of writers so I was very inspired by Howard Becker and also of course Victor Turner definitely if this was a text how would you finish it <laughs> would you end with? Oh, well, I would uh, probably say keep writing. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much, Elena. My pleasure. I wish to give a warm thank you to Professor Helena Wolf for joining us today. If this episode evoked thoughts about your own writing practice, or perhaps brought to mind some methods that you have come to develop which assist you in case of writer's blocks, share your thoughts in the comment section on the show note page of this episode. And don't hesitate to give us feedback on this and other episodes. Your comments are valuable for us to keep developing the podcast. Also, the Society for Cultural Anthropology's biennial meeting is coming up this spring in Ithaca, New York, on May 13th and 14th. The theme of the 2016 meeting is collaboration. Keynote events at the meeting will include plenary conversations with Kim Fortune, Douglas Holmes, Alberto Corzine Jimenez, George Marcus, and Annalise Riles. Consider attending the conference and joining the conversation. You can find more information about the conference and our podcast at our website, www.cullent.org. And you can subscribe to Anthropod via iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And you can also find us at cullent.org. There on the website you can find previous episodes as well as the journal Cultural Anthropology. And you can also find the Social Society for Cultural Anthropology on Facebook and Twitter at Collant. If you wish to email us, we have anthropod at Thank you for listening today. <laughs>